Welcome, welcome. How's everybody doing? Good. I told the first service, I sometimes wonder if I just let that turn and greet go on, I think um, people would just talk the entire hour and hang out with each other. Well, if I haven't met you before, my name's Grant Armstrong. I'm one of the pastors here at Glen Ellen Bible Church. Uh, I would love to meet and connect with you. We believe that one of the primary means God uses to grow us in our faith, help us follow after Jesus, is through relationship. So we try to infuse relationship into all the things that we do. And in that vein, uh, we've got a person out in the welcome center there uh, towards the lobby. They would love to get to know you, hear your name, put a face name together. And we also have a book for you um, that our senior pastor, Kelly Brady, wrote. It's called Following After Jesus. Uh, It just helps give you a little bit of background on who we are, why we do what we do, and how some of that works. Um, But yeah, if we haven't connected, send me an email, talk to me after the service. I'd I'd love to meet you. Uh, Our goal in all of this, of course, is that you would feel quickly at home here, that you would uh, early on experience a sense of belonging that these people and our God is for you. Now, as we start the service this morning, before we get into the sermon, I think that it's important for me to begin by saying thank you to our parents and students who were involved in the Dominican Republic trip. Uh, So if you don't know, a couple weeks ago, we sent down 50 students. Yeah, we can clap for that. We sent about 50 students and leaders down um, to the DR, and they flew back, or they started their journey back on Tuesday, and all kinds of craziness ensued, so they got stuck in Miami. They just returned home on Friday. Um, so it was a little bit of a, a mess all over the place, um, but our students and the student ministry team, they're rock stars, they handled it so well. Um, so I wanna say thanks to Mari and Blake and Mark, they're awesome um, in leading the student missions team, and I was really proud to hear how our students responded. In fact, I got to see some text messages and have some conversations of students who said, hey, even in the hard stuff, we actually felt like we had some God moments and got to experience God, and uh, that was just neat to see that they didn't let it you know, throw them off. So uh, hopefully you will trust us with your students again because it wasn't our fault, but um, (laughs) yeah, for for next summer um, and we probably won't fly through Miami ever again. Uh, As as we uh, start the sermon, let me pray for us real quick and then we'll jump in. God, I pray that you would be with us this morning, that you would fill us with a sense of your hope. God, I pray that the words your scripture would grow us in maturity, that as we mature, we would lead godly lives, that we would bear a lot of fruit for your kingdom. Jesus, we love you. We are grateful for you. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Well, I don't know if you remember, but a few weeks ago, maybe a month now, uh, Kelly was preaching, and he mentioned this remark his dad said to him, something along the lines of, Kelly, you're so heavenly minded that you're of no earthly good. Well, I've continued thinking about that line, what that phrase means, what it reveals, what it might be suggesting. And the reason that it intrigues me is primarily because I think that's probably most of our natural tendency. Now, we might not say it out loud, and we're not against being heavenly minded. I just don't think most of us pursue it with all of our energy, myself included. And so then the the follow-up question that I have to ask is, why is that? And I think there's a little bit of a dynamic at play that was the same thing I experienced as a teenager. 16-year-old boy sitting in a business ethics class in high school, and my hometown was a little different than this area. Um, Here you can throw a rock and you're guaranteed to hit a finance or investment person. (laughs) Where I grew up, 
I had never met anybody like that. So I'm in this class and they say, hey, there's a couple guys gonna come in and talk to you about finance. Um, and they started their talk by introducing, uh, or I guess they started by really saying, hey, we're gonna help you all make lots of money. Well, of course, as a 16-year-old boy, I'm like, I'm in, what do I need to do? Um, what they proposed to us was something that honestly sounded kind of boring, a Roth IRA, uh, even the name is boring. If you don't know what that is, it's a type of savings account for retirement, blah, blah, blah. Uh, but what they, they said is when you're 17, if you start saving every single month and you do this until you're like 35, you can stop. And when you retire, if all goes to plan, you'll have millions of dollars. It's due to the beauty of compound interest, right? Um, that sounded really, really great to me. Except when I walked out of the classroom, I had such a hard time imagining what problems would I face in retirement. As I went through my days and worked and thought about saving, the opportunity that I had to take advantage of time and compound interest, it just kind of went over my head. You see, it was so far away and so different than where I was at in my stage of life that it was really, really hard for me to fathom the opportunity that was in front of me. Now, I don't think that what I experienced as a teenager is that different than what we experience when we think about a godly life and eternity. Few of us go all out on that godly life because the need, the scope of opportunity can be hard for us to fathom. And what if being heavenly minded, being so heavenly minded, actually leads us being a greater earthly good? I think Kelly suggested as much, but what, the, what if the focus on eternity wasn't supposed to be how we live today and instead actually made us better at living on this earth? Wasn't opposed to, excuse me. What if our focus on eternity wasn't opposed to how we live today, but actually made us better at how we live on this earth? What I want to suggest this morning is that is actually the paradigm that God built for us to live within. Now this morning we are concluding our series in the book of Isaiah. And throughout the summer, we have highlighted the major themes of the book, this overarching idea that God is faithful. No matter the circumstances, no matter our behavior, good, bad, up, down, left, right, sideways, God's holiness, his set-apartness, his character and love, they all will always remain unchanged. And we have to watch this unfold as the book of Isaiah oscillates between judgment and hope and judgment, and hope, and judgment. And finally today, we will close on a note of hope. And as we consider that movement from judgment to hope, I think it's important to be aware that judgment and hope, these aren't in competition with one another. There isn't a yin and yang type dynamic at play because hope does not negate or undermine judgment. That said, judgment, it doesn't have to be the final word either. We know that every person will face judgment, but that doesn't have to be the end of the story. So it's in Isaiah 65, verses 17 through 25, that we see God begin to offer his final commentary on the issues of faithfulness, both ours and his, with a message of hope. And as we work our way through this passage, we'll be able to clearly see that, the, that idea and what we can observe is our experience of hope is anchored in the new heavens and the new earth. This is Isaiah 65, 17. God begins by saying, See, I will create a new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. 
Now, we don't often in normal life talk about a new heavens and a new earth. Most of the time, we simply think of heaven. And maybe we think of harps and clouds and singing like the cartoons represent. That the influential pastor, theologian, he recently passed away, Tim Keller, he spent a good bit of time reminding listeners that what we look forward to is ultimately a new heavens, a new earth, creation recreated. Throughout the book of Isaiah, we see that God and creation, they have this special dynamic with one another. Creation has played a critical role in the story thus far. Creation has given evidence of God's existence. The creation shook before God's wrath. Creation was called as a witness to Israel's rebellion. Creation even worshiped God because of the redemption that came through Jesus, the suffering servant. And the word that's used in this verse, creation, is only ever used with God as the subject or the actor. Because only God can do this type of creating and recreating. The new heavens, the new earth, it will be good again. In fact, they'll be so good that we won't even remember when things were bad. Now, can you imagine a life that was so wonderful, so majestic, so grand that you don't even remember anything was ever bad? Not unlike the teen trying to imagine, conceptualize retirement, I can struggle to comprehend the type of world that God will go on to describe for us. Now, he does go on to frame for us what the new heavens and the new earth will look like. And his purpose in this description, in his examples, is to encourage us to find a hope that will allow us to endure the here and now. So here's the big idea of the sermon. The main thing that I'd like you to take away and remember as you go throughout your week. A new heavens and a new earth encourages us to endure hardships and embrace godly living because it promises life as God intended for it to be and the gift of rewards for a life well lived. I'll say it one more time. A new heavens and a new earth, they encourage us to endure hardships today, embrace godly living now, because it promises life as God intended for it to be and the gift of rewards for a life well lived. The promise of a new heavens and a new earth, creation or recreation recreated, should fill us with hope because we get to see things will, how things will be someday. We're reminded that our experience here, that's not all that there is to life. Here's what we know about the new heavens and new earth. God offers us a glimpse of what new creation will be like. And you could summarize this list as the no longer but instead. And that's how I wrote it in, in my Bible. Verse 18 and 19 say, But be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create. For I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people a joy. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and crying will be heard in it no more the new heavens, in the new earth. No longer is there crying and distress, but instead rejoicing. Verse 20 says, Never again will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not live out his years. The one who dies at a hundred will be thought a mere child. The one who fails to reach a hundred will be considered accursed. In this new heavens, 
in this new earth, no longer will we see infants dying, but instead children will live well beyond 100 years. Now that verse, that presses on a bruise in our community, doesn't it? The recent loss of a five-year-old boy, that's painful to think about. But the hope that's offered under new creation is that won't ever happen again. We'll be freed from mourning those types of losses. No longer will people die prematurely, but instead a hundred will be considered a young life. Now this verse can be confusing. Why does it include a discussion of death? I thought that was done. It's a rhetorical method, basically. Uh, It's a, a way of saying that we won't lose anybody anymore, but people live so long that 100 years will be considered like a youth or young. Verse 21 and 22, they will build houses and dwell in them. They will plant vineyards and eat their fruit. No longer will they build houses and others live in them or plant and others eat. For as the days of a tree, so will be the days of my people. My chosen ones will long enjoy the work of their hands. In this new heavens and in this new earth, no longer will somebody take and benefit from the fruits of your labor, but instead you'll receive the benefit of all your hard work. Verse 23, they'll not labor in vain, nor will they bear children doomed to misfortune, for they will be a people blessed by the Lord, they and their descendants with them. In this new heavens and new earth, no longer will your labor produce children that are here to face hardship. But instead, your children will remain with you, and together you will both experience God's blessings. Verse 24, before they call, I will answer. While they are still speaking, I will hear. No longer will you wait on answered prayers, but instead, God will answer as you begin to speak. And finally, the wolf and the lamb, they'll feed together. The lion will eat straw like an ox. Dust will be the serpent's food. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, says the Lord. In this new heaven, in this new earth, no longer will there be constant violence and despair. But instead, there will be peace and harmony. Doesn't that sound like a place we'd like to live in? It sounds so much better than what we experience day to day in this life. And the need for something to be done, for creation to be remade, tells me that God is well acquainted with our current circumstances. The sadness, futility, injustice, death. And our desire for something more, our desire for something to be done, tells me that we know something about God's intent on how life is supposed to be how creation is supposed to be. And this shouldn't surprise us because we are made in God's image. We reflect his cares and concerns to the world. But as we go through our days, we can get stuck because hardships discourage us, hardships discourage us, or sin trips us up. In fact, for many of us, these two elements are often interrelated. When we face hardship, my tendency at least, maybe yours, is to turn to sin to cope rather than God to save. Long day, I just need one extra drink. Feeling discouraged, I'm gonna shop, spend a little more money. Anxious and stressed, I'll just spend an hour scrolling through the feed on my phone. Kids are driving me crazy. 
I'll yell. I'll just power up on them. I hope I'm not the only one in the room with some of those tendencies because that's a hard and painful list to speak out loud. Remember that the promise of a new heaven and a new earth is intended to encourage us to endure hardship and embrace godly living because it reminds us of the rewards of a holy lifestyle and creation as God intended for it to be. Now let's be careful not to confuse the need to endure now with a distant or an unconcerned God. In fact, he is a patient God. But fixing what is broken will require destruction and judgment. He'll have to destroy what currently exists and judgment of good and bad, all that we have done. To build a new house, we have to demo the old house. But God waits on recreating heavens and earth because he longs for all as many as possible to be saved. 2 Peter 3, 4 through 9, Paul writes, They will say, where is this thing coming? He promised. Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. But they deliberately forgot that long ago, by God's word, the heavens came into being and the earth was formed out of the water and by water. By these waters also the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. This day of destruction Judgment, recreation can feel so far away. And just like it's hard for a 16-year-old to imagine the life at retirement age, we can struggle to live considering our eternity. That reality can be so hard for us to imagine. Well, what do we do with all this? Because if I'm in your shoes, I'm probably thinking, well, that's great, but I have to go to work tomorrow. And it's not all joy-filled. I'm going to face some colleagues I don't necessarily like, ethical dilemmas, maybe my failures, angry customers. There's pressure to perform. So it's great that one day that's all gone, but one day that's not tomorrow. Or maybe you're thinking, if God's going to recreate anything anyways, why are we so uptight about how we're living today? I'm not saying go out and be a murderer, but maybe we can loosen up on some of these rules or the commands God's given. Why does it matter so much? And those are great questions, and I know that because I asked them this week. And here's my answer. This is the conclusion I came to. Because all the good that you do in this life is not simply rewarded here. And all the evil that's done in this life is not simply punished here. You've observed good people who can't catch a break, and I know that you've seen evil people who seem to succeed at everything they do. That same gap we struggle with as teens is at play here. How I live today has massive implications for how I live in the future. Said a little differently, what happens in this life has a direct impact on what happens in the next life. There are consequences to our choices. And they begin now, but they come to fruition when God concludes our earthly existence. Now, I want you to hear me clearly. I am not saying the way you live can save you. 
We're not talking about salvation in this part of the conversation. You are saved apart from anything that you do. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, for it's by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it's the gift of God. Not by works so that no one can boast. You're not saved by your works, but you will be rewarded, good or bad, for the works that you do. Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians 3, by the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as a wise builder and someone else is building on it, but each one should build with care. For no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, their work will be shown for what it is because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire and fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it's burned up, the builder will suffer loss but yet will be saved, even though only as one escaping through the flames. The way we choose to live has eternal outcomes. The reason you choose to live a righteous and holy life today is because it is a rehearsal of our life in eternity. A godly life both anticipates and proclaims the new heavens, and the new earth. You see, you're cultivating in yourself a spirit that will either bristle at God and his holiness or falls in love with God and his holiness. And the decisions you make, the spirit you've cultivated, it will inform the level of delight that you experience when you're in God's presence. In short, the way you live matters a lot for both eternity and today. Because your life puts on display for everybody else what you believe to be true about God. Now, I'm guessing that you can think of a person in your life that just can't catch a break, and yet they stay faithful to God. They choose to continue on the straight and narrow path of faith. There's a list of people from our congregation that went through my mind this week who fit this description. I would say we should be ready when we get to the new heavens and the new earth to see all the blessings that God gives them. I had this professor in seminary and he used to say, man, I'll be mowing that guy's lawn in heaven. And I think for some, that's how it's going to be. You could look as an example at the missionaries for Glen Ellen Bible Church. They could be back here in the burbs living it up with us, making money, comfy houses, nice cars. And I'm not condemning those things. You can work a nine-to-five and serve Jesus very faithfully. But they're facing persecution, danger, loneliness, jail for some of them. They're out there working to proclaim the name of Jesus to the globe. They get it. They're living in light of eternity. And I can tell you this. I know I'm going to be mowing the lawns of some of them in heaven. And this is the point. Don't give up. Don't give up doing good. You can endure. These are promises made by God. The reason we grit it out, that we don't give up, that we run the race, that we discipline our bodies is because one day all of this suffering will be gone. All the pain will be removed and we'll stand before God with our lives on full display and only what's worthwhile will remain into eternity. 
we can endure and sacrifice and remain faithful because we know one day our God will turn despair into forever joy. God will turn futility into forever satisfaction and fulfillment. And God will turn that which decays into something permanent and beautiful. The truth is, we're not actually alone as we endure, as we carry our cross. It's not by our own strength that we're able to persevere because just like God is the only one who can create a new heavens and a new earth, God is the only one who can bring us into new birth. God is the only one who can rescue us and empower us to live a life that honors him. Titus says it this way, chapter 2, For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions, to live a self-controlled life, upright and godly lives in this present age, while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of glory of our great, and, great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, I hope you find that as encouraging as I do, that God's Spirit is teaching us, that it's caring for us, maturing us to say no to ungodliness. Now, if you long for that in your life, if you say, I'm, I'm trying to follow after Jesus, but I, I feel trapped. I'm stuck. I can't possibly continue to say no to this sin. I promise you that God is eager to care for you. And you can invite him and ask him to do that for you even now. Maybe all this is new. Maybe the new heavens and new earth isn't something you've considered before. Maybe you're not sure about this whole Jesus thing, but you have a sense, I want to be part of that. That sounds a whole lot better than what I've got going on today. That desire in you, that's the Holy Spirit moving you. All you have to do is give voice to your desire to follow after Jesus. You know, when I discipline my sons for their misbehavior, they're understandably upset. But each time, I remind them the beauty of this life is that they can try again. The mistake, the failure, the sin, it isn't the end. Tomorrow's a new day. We can try again. So when you veer off the path of godliness, when you cope by overindulging, by overspending, maybe by judging or wasting time or blaming, just pause. Take a minute to talk to God. Ask forgiveness. Repent. You missed it today. And maybe you sinned in the process. And that sin, it's not nothing. But it certainly isn't everything. Because tomorrow is a new day. And there is a God who is eager to care for you to teach you to say no to ungodliness, to help you endure for the sake of a joyful eternity with him. And if you find yourself enduring today, if you're facing despair or pain, frustration, depression, anxiety, some kind of hardship, we as a body of Christ, as your church, we want to be in that with you. So in just a little bit, we're going to stand and we're going to sing loudly we're going to proclaim what is true about God, rehearsing for the new heavens and the new earth. That's to encourage your soul. And I'd love for you to come forward in a few minutes and to pray. Actually, would you guys, Larson, would you be willing to pray? If you feel compelled in that need for God, for the Spirit to help you endure, come forward and pray with the Larsons. I know that they'd love to pray for you. Your heavenly Father, he wants to care for you and it's such a wonderful way to experience his care.
You know, maybe you're looking at your life and you're not really facing that much hardship or severe circumstances. That's totally fine. But here's my ask for you. Would you then proclaim God's goodness by worshiping and by praying for the others in this room? Because the good you're experiencing, it is a gift from God. And when you sing and when you pray, you preach and you encourage the people around you that God is good in all circumstances. And some of us, some of the people in the room this morning, they are desperate to hear and be reminded that that is true today. So as we conclude the service with singing, let's do our best to imagine the new heavens, the new earth that God will create, and let that reality fuel our actions in this moment and throughout our week. Amen?